what is that job when you like call in planes? That's an airline pilot. Not the pilot, the person with the things. The person with the things. Yep. Speaking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben. Welcome back to today's show where we talk all about the NBA playoffs until I go blue in the face. What a what a first round. Cody, it only took two weeks. I, I felt like two to three months we were on the first round. It had, in my opinion, the place where we should probably start before we bang out a couple previews and, and whatnot. I think the best first round series I've ever seen, the Sacramento Kings, the Golden State Warriors, seven scintillating games. Now, there's some people I tweeted about this on the Twitter.com. I don't I don't love to go out and tweet on the Twitter.com, but I, I just had to share my love with everyone about this just beautiful seven-game series. And there were some people that were like, uh, maybe you can read some of the responses. They were like, this is not the best first-round series of all time. Look, here's the thing. It did not end up with the most suspense of any first-round series of all time. It did not end up with the most close games and buzzer beaters and things like that. But for me, the quality of basketball, where you're talking about teams that could easily make a conference finals, if not more, and then the complexity of the game, the, the, the counters that are built into these offenses, two flowing movement offenses with a ton of shooters and a ton of on-ball skill. and I mean, just Malik Monk and, and De'Aaron Fox, what they were able to do for the Kings in isolation, in transition, penetration, step-back threes. You got Trey Lyles and, and Terrence Davis coming off the bench for Sacramento, making fadeaway threes as they run into the corner. These are the bench players who don't even play that much, and we haven't even gotten to the Warriors who have won 19 consecutive Western Conference playoff series. Uh, I can't even find a close second in NBA history. Even the Jordan Bulls didn't win 13 conference playoff series in a row. Well, more than 13. They won exactly 13 in a row in the 1990s. So, uh, Cody, and then LeBron and Steph Curry are going to play in the next round. I I have so many thoughts. I'm I'm, um, combusting. I'm completely combusting. So going going to your tweet, I want to go there for for a second before we actually talk about some basketball. Can I, because can I let everyone know that this is this is the segment that you've wanted to run for like two years? Just read tweets. It's it's like the opposite of Jimmy Kimmel mean tweets. They're still mean, but we read them in a in a philosophical and analytical manner. Ben, this is the name of the segment. It's called Read Tweet. <laughs> See, it's it's the perfect segment. So this this is us read tweeting, right? Uh, first of all, most people their response was just like saying a different uh, a different series that happened, which is fair. I appreciate that people are putting in some different thoughts. Major shout out. I'm not actually looking at anyone's names right now. I copy and pasted what you said. Major shout out to the person that was like 1984 first round between the Sonics and the Mavericks was fire. And I went and checked it out. That's a good old fashioned Gus Williams sort of Jack Sigma, uh, Tom Chambers, uh, Mark Aguirre uh, series. And I'm like, you know what? This is a good one. All these games are really close. We should probably give more recognition to this one for sure. You, you know what's uh, amazing to me is when I saw 1984, I thought certainly it's going to be the uh, the Knicks and the Pistons with Isaiah Thomas and Bernard King oh, going wow. back and forth. But now, now I'm wondering, was that even the first round? I can't keep track of this stuff. Maybe 
that's what threw me off. But continue. We had some other uh, other great series that were mentioned. I know you want to you want to go to the re- is it read read tweeting? What are we calling this segment? Reading tweets? Yeah, just read tweet. Read tweet. Read tweet. Okay. Read yep. tweet. Uh, so I think that what was it the 2009 first round series between the Bulls and Celtics? Ray Allen. There's like a double overtime game. Ray Allen drops 50, goes full seven. Looks like there's going to be an upset. That was a really good one. Um, well, that that, that was the ultimate for suspense and end game sort of situations. My thing with that series was because Garnett was injured, neither team really felt potent coming out of the conference. So it was more like two not so good teams. It was like an eight, nine matchup in an NCAA tournament where they're going back and forth. I know Noah had a steal at the end of one game with the dunk to punctuate it. Ray Allen had some crazy threes in the double overtime game. I think Paul Pierce hit one at the end of a game in Boston. And it was like, how many games went into overtime in that series, how many games were three, four games were decided on the final shot? So it definitely, I think, took the cake for like volume of suspense in a playoff series. But that, that for me, I mean, I, I was just uh, that Kings, that Kings Warriors series. If let's put it this way, if you were to take the clips of the plays in that series and try to break them down. I think it would take like eight times longer than any other series in NBA history because there's so much going on in every play. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm not done with retweeting, Ben. I have one more and I'm going to I'm going to Sean Kemp this one. You know, I'm not much for public dunking, but I'm absolutely going to just like cock this one back and throw it down. But this person says, Ben, you didn't watch Bulls Celtics 2009. I will no longer respect your basketball opinions as you show too much Warriors bias. Ben, what do you have to say for yourself? I mean, He's got me. I mean, he's right. I I did not watch uh, 2009 Warriors Celtics. Uh, some other version of me watched that. So uh, you know, I think from that standpoint, he's completely right. Yep. Oh wow. Okay. So now we have this a little philosophy corner. I like this. I like where we're going. Let's actually get to some basketball, Ben. Um, Warriors Kings. Stephen Curry, 50 points. Something about this 50-point game from him felt even a little bit different from other 50, not even other 50-point games, because it's not like he has any in the playoffs before, but something felt different about this scoring barrage. I don't know if you felt the same way, but it wasn't necessarily just like the pulling up from 40 feet sort of thing. You know, he had plenty of his threes, but Ben, Steph Curry's handle, his driving ability, his command of just like slicing his way through the defense, even when they were able to chase him around screens... It honestly felt completely inevitable in a way that I don't quite remember seeing a Steph Curry scoring game before. Did you have the same feeling watching him in Game 7? Yeah, I did. So much so that I am in the middle of a video. Mm. You're ruining, you're spoiling the video, Cody. You're saying things that I'm saying with moving pictures behind them, so I don't want to spend too much time on it. Because if we talk about it enough, then I like will give up on the video. I I won't get it out. So all the things you just said, I agree with. It, in some ways, was like the first time watching Curry for me and feeling that like Jordan-esque, that like just energy of control over the game. And I, and I know he had, I think he had 34 of his 50 in the second half. So to some people, if you're focusing on the scoring, it felt second half dominant. But even in the first half, going back over the footage for this video, he just has a control of the game that was really apparent. And the way I want to do this today, because I want to, I want to let that video speak for itself. Okay. But the way I want to do it today is to say, 
what happens when you take that performance and you put it up against the Lakers? Because that's the thing that's been bouncing around in my mind this morning. Because the as, as well as the Kings defended for the Kings, their ceiling as a defense is lower because they don't really have any rim protection. The Warriors, for all the challenges they've had this season, their ceiling as a defense is higher a, because they're the Warriors, so experience, coaching, communication, IQ, all that stuff. B, the personnel is a little richer. Um, you know, Davion Mitchell was great chasing Steph Curry around. I, I don't know why. I, I would have liked to have seen Davion Mitchell play more mm-hmm. yesterday. You know, I think Mike Brown's been great, but I, this is not the kind of thing I enjoy. I don't like second-guessing the coach. And so just to be clear... Mike might have had his reasons for doing this, and and um, they might have been perfectly consistent. But I was wondering, like, man, this feels like Davion has had great minutes in this series. I kind of wanted to see him out there more. But the Warriors, who do they bring off the bench? They bring Gary Payton the second off the bench, and they got playoff Kavon Looney, or or as he is known around these parts, Moses Malone, <laughs> the uh, the one and only. I mean, 20 rebounds a game, um, you know, he and Draymond Green, short roll passing and the decision making, five, six, seven assists a game for these guys. They have rim protection. Andrew Wiggins provides rim protection. So their ceiling as a defense is higher. The Lakers defense, Cody, gets really interesting because they're giant. And Anthony Davis, to me, in the Memphis series physically look the best he's looked since the bubble, which gives the the fan in me gets chills just thinking about these guys coming back and returning to form and playing at high level basketball and seeing what we just saw from Steph Curry and uh, seeing what we just saw from AD and thinking about, you know, knock on wood, everyone staying healthy. But the Lakers can throw out these lineups with Anthony Davis. Um, I doubt you'll see it against... The, the Warriors, but they've played Wendy and Gabriel at the four. But typically LeBron James, who's huge, has some rim protection himself, just has a basketball computer in his brain right after the game. You know, one of the first things Steve Kerr said about facing LeBron again is how knowledgeable he is about the game, where you come out of a timeout and he starts telling his teammates what play the Warriors are running. So you have that back there. You have Jared Vanderbilt, who's 6'8", 6'9", and can start on guards. It's going to be really interesting to see how they use him in this series and really interesting to see if his minutes get schemed down because of the lack of shooting on the other end. Is this more of a defensive dominant series or is it an offensive dominant series? And then the Lakers are getting big minutes out of Rui Hachimura, who's a big 6'8 body and athlete. Troy Brown, who's 6'7, 6'8. They are ginormous. So when you see a game where Curry basically dominates by getting to the basket, and yes, it's all the stuff you mentioned. It's the handle. It's the body control. It's incredible. But it's going to look different when Anthony Davis and LeBron James and Jared Vanderbilt and Rui Hachimura are the guys rotating over in the paint versus even Sabonis is not that vertical as a shot blocker. And then the rest of the Kings, very small lineups. Trey Lyles, they had one... One small ball lineup, I think, where Kevin Herter was the other biggest player on the court. And you had like De'Aaron Fox, Malik Monk, Terrence Davis. These these really small lineups. The Lakers cut in the opposite direction. They're giant. They have paint protection. They have rim protection. They're bruising. They're physical. 
that's where my mind starts. How much can the Warriors get at the basket? What is a Steph Curry series going to look like, both on the perimeter and at that middle and inner six level that he's been so good at accessing in the last two years in the postseason? So to connect both of these series here, you know, we have our, our live game thinking basketball discussions where we're kind of going back and forth talking about the game. And there was one point, I think it might have been near the end of the third, maybe at the beginning of the fourth. I just kind of floated it out there. I said something like, the Kings look broken to me. And you know what happened? Mike De La Rosa disliked it. He threw me a thumbs down on that. No, and I went you back. got the was, thumbs down? Here's the thing. I was thinking about this. I don't want social media to get in my head, but I'm like, okay, if Mike's disagreeing with me, I need to go back and rethink what I'm doing here. What am I trying to communicate? Because I'm watching and I'm like, maybe it's not that the Kings are broken. I think the key to what happened in that Game 7 matchup is that the Warriors, instead of trying to fight fire with fire, instead of just trying to outpace this masterclass offensive team, they came at them with a different angle. Gary Payton comes in there and is just like, man, he is locking people up, blocking Malik Monk's jump shot on the drive. I think Keegan Murphy, Keegan Murray, he gets back on transition. Murphy, I don't know who that is. Uh, but he closes out on him in transition and blocks his three. Just incredible stuff. Kevon Looney is just out there grabbing every offensive rebound. Moses Moody's grabbing offensive rebounds. Andrew Wiggins is throwing his length out there. And that, it was almost more like the Kings were overwhelmed, not broken. It was just a pitch that they were not prepared to handle. And I think that's the thing. Like, we, I don't think we can see the Warriors beating the Lakers at that game. Like you said, Rui Hachimura, something that stood out to me during these playoffs, that dude is big. That dude plays big, right? When he plays as a quote-unquote small ball four, there's nothing small about that four, right? Like, he is a big dude out there. Vanderbilt plays uh, bigger than he's built. Anthony Davis is flexible, massive. LeBron, obviously very strong. I think the thing that concerns me, though, about this coming from the Lakers angle, something that concerns me about them is more like their perimeter defense. Because I think the Davion Mitchell, De'Aaron Fox, Malik Monk, these guys are all agile and quick, and I think they can chase the Warriors around their screens, and they play kind of a similar scheme. But I look at the Lakers, and I'm like, are they going to be able to keep up with that? So what do you think about the Lakers' perimeter defense upcoming against the Warriors? Well, this is why I say it's just going to look really different, right? I, I completely agree. Hats off, by the way, not just to Davion Mitchell, but Malik Monk, to some degree, Kevin Herter, to some degree, who's an underrated defender in and of itself. Um, De'Aaron Fox, man, just some of the defensive possessions he had in the series, chasing these guys, staying connected. And maybe it's because Mike Brown is coming from Golden State, but they had the, they had the Curry rules. They had the Warriors rules down. Right, They understood you got to stay with this guy on relocations. This is how stepping out on screens works. This is when they run that uh, curl off the ball and Clay Thompson or whoever comes up off those stagger screens, whoever is guarding Draymond or Looney as the passer, you got to sag way over into that gap and help on that pass. They had those things buttoned up for like 95% of the seven games. And that's really hard to do because you have to be in incredible shape. And the Kings are, of course, in incredible, like maybe the best conditioned team in the league. And mentally, you have to be sharp and sort of mind your P's and Q's and know your rules. I thought they did a great job on that. So all that perimeter screening action that the Warriors run outside, uh, I don't know if the Lakers have the same personnel to kind of take care of that. But of course... It's almost an inverted situation because they potentially can be so much better in the paint 
sliding over. And we've seen possessions in the past from Golden State against big athletic teams going all the way back to Oklahoma City in 2016. The 2019 Raptors in the finals, I know they didn't have the the full uh, personnel in that series because of Kevin Durant and sometimes Klay Thompson's injury. But even the Celtics last year a little bit, we've seen it. If you've got a ton of size in the lane, when they run these actions, they don't always have a guy who can finish. Draymond Green, even Kevon Looney, certainly Steph Curry, certainly Klay Thompson, they can't always get into the space and comfortably finish if there's a big body or two sliding over. And maybe that's going to be the key for the series uh, defensively for the Lakers. Barring, of course, the Warriors just shooting like crazy on the perimeter if they, they can take advantage of that. You know, how successful can they be getting bigger bodies to rotate into the paint to take away the rim? Um, I don't know. It's just so fascinating, Cody, to see every one of these rounds, the style makes the fight and like drastically changing what it's going to look like and feel like. And we haven't even talked about the other side of the ball where the Kings had the most efficient offense in NBA history. They play at lightning pace and the Warriors, I mean, the, the Lakers are like also the opposite of that. Yeah. And they also have the Lakers also have like the best player of all time at slowing down the pace of the game and just controlling it that way. Obviously, this LeBron James is much different than like the actual uh, queen of the chessboard LeBron that we've seen before. We've seen him take a lot more, not take plays off, but I guess like giving the reins to somebody else. Like Austin Reeves, run this offense now. Uh, D'Angelo Russell, Russell, run this offense. I'm going to go stand in the corner while this happens. But yeah, I think the key, something that I'm going to be watching really closely this series is I am going to be watching Kevon Looney. I want to see where he's going to get his value because, you know, he's had 10 offensive rebounds in two different playoff games in his career. Last year against, I think, game six against the Grizzlies, the Warriors grabbed 25 offensive rebounds against the Grizzlies last year, 25, all right? And Kevon Looney grabbed 10 of them or 11 of them, something like that. And Looney, again, last night, grabs 10 offensive rebounds. If he's being defended by Anthony Davis, Rui Hachimura, uh, Jared Vanderbilt, though I feel like Jared Vanderbilt's going to be deployed on the perimeter more. That's what I feel. Maybe LeBron will be on here. I don't know. I'm just really interested to see where Looney's going to get his value with that rebounding. Because like you said, the free throw shooting isn't there. The finishing isn't necessarily there. So is he going to be able to slither in there and make an impact on the offensive glass? Yeah, it feels like a series where he could be completely overwhelmed by both the sides because he's not particularly big himself and just the presence of Anthony Davis. But also, Cody, it's it's Moses Maloon. What can the man not do? I just... He is. He has been one of the more reliable players, especially in the playoffs. Um, that I don't know that I can remember maybe ever, just in terms of a role player on a championship type team. I mean, this is this is a dynasty we're talking about. They're here constantly in these situations, and the guy just finds a way to contribute, even if he only plays twenty or twenty-two minutes a game. So he was incredible last series. A big question for me is, can he just find success defending Davis by himself in whatever actions um, he ends up on him? Of course, the Lakers, one thing they do, and they did it to Memphis, is they they put you in pick and roll with Anthony Davis as a screener. And then they say, would you like to switch or would you like to give up the advantage of an NBA screen with Anthony Davis involved in the action? And if you switch, 
what they're doing is they're going, okay, we're going to attack that switch in some way because now we have a smaller player on AD and we can throw it into the post or we can work the matchups. You know, you have to bend your defense to protect against that and you can get offensive rebounds and backside lobs and things like that. So right away, just how is that sort of defensive dance going to go? Golden State does have Draymond Green, you know, arguably the most brilliant defensive player of the of modern basketball of, of this generation. Um, so he's incredible, usually at helping and scramming and understanding, you know, oh, you got to switch. Well, I'm going to come in and kick you out. And now all of a sudden Draymond Green's guarding Anthony Davis and it's not as beneficial for the offense. D'Angelo Russell, is he the Lakers version of Kavon Looney in this series? Do you say like, well... What happens to D'Angelo Russell if he can't chase these guys on the perimeter? How much can he give up defensively? And as we've seen before, and we certainly saw it in the first round, if his shot isn't going on offense and his decision-making isn't crisp on offense, then he's taking up oxygen and possessions that could go to LeBron James, that could go to Anthony Davis, frankly, that could go through Austin Reeves, you know, as we saw in one of the games, they just had Reeves run a ton of offense down the stretch. So D'Lo is that guy for me, who's ostensibly the Lakers, you know, he's in the starting lineup, but what happens if he sort of becomes a problem defensively? Where does he go in the series? And the crazy thing about the Lakers is this: like, they could just throw a totally different type of team out there because of the roster that they have. I'm afraid of the kinds of lineups that they would throw out there, though, because I'm imagining like LeBron at point guard sorts of lineups. But if Steph Curry's out there playing point guard and Clay Thompson's out there, like I really don't want LeBron chasing people around. But I guess that's the magic of Jared Vanderbilt is if you have this, this is the secret about having Anthony Davis, LeBron James and Vanderbilt out there is you can throw basically any kind of defensive lineup, save for like chasing people around screens really well. Those are three of the most flexible defensive big type of players out there like Vanderbilt can can hang around the paint black block some shots you can put him out in the perimeter Anthony Davis can drop Anthony Davis can switch LeBron can post people up like that's just a lot of advantages that they can blow up let me ask you a question Ben if you were to give a defensive player of the of the playoffs so far award would you say that it's between Anthony Davis and Draymond Green and if you had to pick between them who's been the more impactful defender in these playoffs I think I would give it to Davis yeah. after the after the first series um Draymond's always great, but yeah, Dave, Davis was ridiculous against Memphis, and we saw this in the bubble when he kind of becomes a defensive cheat code in modern basketball. I mean, there may be no better series to test this idea. I think it would have been a little bit easier for a younger, slimmer, healthier Anthony Davis. He's 30 years old now. He's got more wear and tear on his body coming back from these injuries, but man, what a sort of litmus test, right? What a, what a what a concept to test drive here where they we know from the way Golden State plays, the history of playing Steph Curry, we know what they do is a game of geometry pulling you out 25, 27, 32 feet away from the basket and they make all those recoveries, all the drops, anything you any coverage you want to play it doesn't matter. They make it longer. They make it harder. You have to take an extra step or two. That's hard. That's really hard on defenses. I'm not sure there's a team in this era that has used high screens 
in a more vicious fashion than the Golden State Warriors. Draymond Green, we're going to set a pick for Steph Curry out at the logo. And it sounds ridiculous, but especially we saw it at, at times in the finals last year against Boston. If you don't bring a big man outside the three-point line, that's like a 38 or 40% comfortable shot for Steph Curry in his pocket from like 27 to 30 feet. So this is the series where you say, hey, I've got Anthony Davis as this super flexible small ball five. The Lakers right now as constructed have a pretty good defensive roster. You laid it out, Vando, LeBron, et cetera, et cetera. Um, They're not great chasing though. They don't have a ton of chasers. We've seen teams like the Kings, like the 2019 Raptors with Fred Van Vliet and Kyle Lowry. We've seen some of these small teams have small guards that can chase you around. Cody, I was wondering when they were going to dust off Matthew Della Vadova for, for inspirational purposes, who's going to come in the game and chase Curry around. So the Lakers aren't built like that. The Lakers are bigger. The Lakers have struggled at times to get back in transition or uh, play against pace. It's, it feels like a pretty big fire and ice kind of, kind of series. Do you, do you feel that way as well? I, oh, absolutely. But with that said, I do feel pretty comfortable picking a team in this ben do you feel com- like who do, wow. who do you think's gonna take this series no i haven't even started once we're done recording i'm gonna make a video and then i'm gonna lay out some of my final thoughts on this series for patreon subscribers and really in my head uh i have not thought about which way i would lean in this series because even sometimes what happens is even you you review a series you get into the film and you realize oh i feel comfortable taking a team i feel like 70 75 comfortable taking a team um, that's a, that can happen when you're in my current state versus, oh, I, I feel very comfortable about this matchup right away. I'm, I'm not in that place yet because we, we've only seen these Lakers together for like two months max. Um, the Warriors, they're a different team with Andrew Wiggins. They just got Gary Payton, the second operational. I kind of want to say that like Emperor Palpatine is Payton is fully operational for the first time. And uh, it's it's a different team. It, we're 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 in uncharted territory here in 2023. The basketball is crazy. It's incredible. Teams are scoring 114 points per 100 in the playoffs. I don't have a feel yet, but I will I will give you the floor because you so boldly you so boldly one you picked the Kings outright, which was just I I think uh, took took great gumption. But two, the one we really have to give you credit for. If listeners of this show know, it's hard. It was painful. It's painful. We skipped over it last time because it was just so crazy. You said the Miami Heat. You said that the Miami Heat were lurking dangerously. You texted me during the play-in week, and you were like, oh, no, you keep those Miami Heat away from my Milwaukee Bucks. And, um, yeah, you were all over that. You were all over that. So I've, let's let's hear what you got for us. Let's stand back. Let's write it down. We'll do the little thing where we write it up on the wall like Charles Barkley and the TNT crew. Uh, who's going to win this series? No, I can't I can't write it up on this this beautiful wood behind me. I'd have to get more of a whiteboard up here. But Is that, is yeah. that real wood? Sure. It, it feels real enough to me. I, I didn't build the house, Ben. It's, I don't know. It you sounds guys, like wood. You guys don't mess around in the Midwest. It looks like wood. Yeah, it's a good, sturdy housing, right? We're just surrounded by wood as far as the eye can see. you got to build everything from it. Uh, what, what are we talking about? We're talking about... Your uh, prediction for that. You said you know who's going to win this series. First of all, I, I need to build up because I'm, I'm a man of dramatics, Ben. 
Uh, I need to find the podcast episode where I raved about the Heat going into the playoffs. I think it was after one of those Knicks Heat matchups in uh, in March at some point. So I need to find that snippet where I was talking about them. Second of all, Ben, the gauntlet missing out on our defensive episode. Like, it's too bad he was out because yesterday, if he played anything near like he played yesterday, he would have been all over the, the award belt. So this is me uh, talking later, giving him props now as to somebody that should have been if he was healthy. Ben, I think the series is going to go six or seven because I think both teams have a great, have a have a propensity to lay eggs. Let's just say it that way. Both teams have propensity to lay eggs, but I do think the Warriors are going to walk away and, and win this win this series. Wow. I, I think it's the Warriors. Wow. Throwing the gauntlet down, thanks to the gauntlet. Uh, Cody Hodek, ladies and gentlemen. Hey, Bubble Jamal Murray showed up over the weekend, and we've been talking for half an hour, and we haven't even, <laughs> we haven't even mentioned that. Um, we, we have... I think we have other series. There's two other series in the Eastern Conference. Did we? Oh my God. Did we talk about Miami and we previewed Miami and New York? Last we didn't night. talk about game game one then. Game one. What do I mean? Steph Curry saved Tom Thibodeau yesterday. He completely saved him because <laughs> because of all the silly criticisms of coaches that take place during the playoffs. And look, I I get it. I get it. The game is really complicated. Fans are really passionate. They want some explanation. They want a clear, simple explanation for why things went wrong. Um, I think a lot of the times this happens when you pick a team or you place a wager on a team and then it falls apart and you need someone to kind of blame for for why you're not feeling so good about losing money or, or feeling wrong or something. And the game's really complex and you say, well, my my coach didn't play Davion Mitchell in the second half, four, he should have played him four more minutes than he played him, and that's the reason why they lost the series. But in this case, uh, there was a crazy thing that happened, and it, it, it is the kind of thing where you're like, did Tibbs, did they talk about this? Did they know this was happening? Jimmy Butler sprained his ankle with like five or six minutes left in the fourth quarter, and then I'm fairly certain, Cody, I want to put on my little tinfoil cap here, I don't get to wear a tinfoil hat very much, so it's very fun when I get to go into this space. I am fairly certain that Jimmy Butler could not run and that in the in the timeout, without even saying anything, Butler's like, I'm, I'm playing, I'm staying in the game. And then Spoh's like, yeah, you can play, you're staying in the game. And Butler's like, I'm just going to be a distraction. And Spoh's like, he's just going to be a distraction. And they probably never discussed it. And I am not exaggerating. If you miss this game, First of all, shame on you because playoff basketball in Madison Square Garden is, is spectacular. But um, second, I shouldn't I shouldn't shame the listener. It, it's, it's a great game. So Jimmy Butler, for the last five minutes of the game, Cody, went and stood in the corner. And the first I don't know if you noticed this on the first possession, as the Heat were running the possession, he simulated warming up and taking a shot out of the corner. He was in the corner practicing his shooting stroke with an air basketball during the possession. But he did not take any steps. And when he ran back on defense, he could not move on defense. And instead of finding a way to attack him or just isolating against him, the couple times that the Heat actually had him guarding someone, he was just standing there, a screener came over and brought another defender. And they just switched the defender. And Butler took like a couple awkward steps back into the paint. And he's like, I'll stand in the paint. So long story short... Apparently, Miami got better with decoy Jimmy Butler 
in the last six minutes of the game versus him actually playing at full strength. I think Jimmy, regardless of the fact that he was taking his practice jumpers, I think the one shot he took was an air ball from the corner, a zero lift air ball, right? So we're we're talking like Jimmy Butler's out there doing his best Willis Reed impersonation, even though he's moving even worse than Willis Reed. Much worse than Willis Reed. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to say that he couldn't run, I I think that's the, the truth. I didn't see him like go past any kind of a gallop at all. And the fact that he wasn't putting any kind of actions, th- that was wild to me. And it, you know, I'm not going to point all to 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 Thibodeau at all, but like how did the Knicks players not realize this either? It was just a a, a sort of meltdown. It was really strange to see in in real time because I think the Heat went on like a 7-0 run. And it's like, what is going on? Jimmy Butler they're playing 5 on 4. Jimmy Butler can't move. It's a very surreal moment in the playoffs. Yeah, yeah. I, I I don't think we're exaggerating to say they were playing five on four. It was crazy. And of course, five minutes of NBA basketball, you slow it down, it comes out to like 10 or 12 possessions or whatever it is. So it's not many possessions. But A, the Heat went on a run. And B, it genuinely felt like it discombobulated the Nick. You're like, why don't the Knicks attack Jimmy Butler? oh, the Knicks feel like they're struggling to figure out how to attack Jimmy Butler. Do the Knicks know Jimmy Butler can't move or walk? Oh, the possession's over. It was a turnover or an air ball. (laughs) This is what the last six minutes of this game felt like. And I think when he got injured, it was like a four or five point game, three point game, something like that. So a, a very surreal ending to game one. But game one definitely delivered the goods because these teams are, uh, they're going to have a rock fight. That's what I took away from game one. I, I don't know how deep you want to get in here, but I have one more. I, this is a very serious topic, Ben, but it's a little bit more shallow about this Knicks Heat game. This is something that I think if anyone's going to tackle this, it needs to be here right now. We need to take this segment and just send it directly to the league office because I think we're both on the same page here. Ben. What is it? What are, we, what are we? You got me all excited now. Kyle Lowry was credited with four blocks this game. Ben, the swipe down, when somebody's near the basket and the point guard shifts over Kyle Lowry and they swipe and strip the ball, it counts as a block. Kyle Lowry did not have four blocks. Those were four steals, Ben. I, I do not understand the reasoning behind crediting that as a block. Do you do you have any defense? Do you have any defense, Ben? We, we have to talk about the Nuggets and the Suns and then we have to decide if we're ever going to acknowledge the Celtics are in the playoffs because um, we've made it this far without talking about the Celtics at all. And, you know, this I was getting excited to do a Celtics 76ers preview on today's show, honestly. And then Joel Embiid has the, the knee swelling and he's looks like going to be out for the beginning of the series. So we have things to get to, but I need to take 60 seconds to talk about this. Okay. Throughout the entire history of the NBA, a blocked shot is when someone shoots a shot at the basket and the defender hits the ball. That's what a block shot is. And I don't, by the way, you don't get a block shot if it goes in. So if you hit the ball and it goes in, it's not a block. If you hit the ball and it doesn't go in, it's a block. But the key, Cody, to a block shot is you have to take a shot. And what they've done in the last few years, and it's just getting more and more egregious, or from maybe the scorekeeper's perspective, more consistent. Because if you go and you look at NBA, you go to stats.nba.com and you pull up a player and you pull up his blocks. I've talked about this with Nikola Jokic before. You can see all of the plays where he's credited with a block on the season. And they are very consistent now about giving players blocks for swipe downs before the player is even shooting. 
And I'm not talking about like the upward motion of a shot even. I'm talking about the gather. The guy picks the ball up and he gathers and he's going through the lane. And we don't know if he's going to shoot yet. We don't know what the shot's going to look like. We don't know if he's going to pass. And Kyle Lowry in this game, three, maybe all four times, he did it repeatedly. Cody actually texted the group and he said, how many, how many swipe downs does Kyle Lowry have in the game? And I texted him back, well, he has four blocks. Even though if you watch this basketball game, Kyle Lowry did not block a single shot. There was no shot attempt that Kyle Lowry went up with his hands over his head and said, I am blocking this shot. So um, that's weird because the whole, the entire history of basketball, I mean, we may, Cody, we may be in a place in three, four years where, you know, someone like Muggsy Bogues leads the league in block shots. He is an elite rim protector <laughs> at five foot three. Let's move on to the, uh, the Nuggets and the Suns. Did you have any thoughts on this game besides the fact that the entire league needs to hold its breath and get those little, get those little Walt Disney ears off of Jamal Murray? Man, where do I want to start with this? Um, let's, start, let's actually start with Jokic for a second, Ben. Does he seem, does he seem just a tad off to you? Does something about his yeah. scoring seem a little off to you? Well, he's got this wrist thing. I don't know what it is. Um, I've heard rumors it's worse than being let on. I don't really trust those rumors. I just want to acknowledge that they exist in case later on this this comes out. So I don't know if there's something going on with the wrist. I don't think his conditioning is where it was four months ago either. I don't know if that's from missing time. He had you know he missed some time at the end of the season with a calf, things like that. Not quite as crisp to me. He actually missed some passes. In this last game, you know, I was I was watching Jokic during the middle of the year. You you would go three four weeks before the guy missed a pass for an open cutter or something, and he had a couple passes that were out of sync with teammates. In this game, is that the pressure of the playoffs and the intensity ramping up? Is that the Nuggets playing at fifth gear instead of fourth gear for most? Because they were they were way out in front with the one seed for a while at a given point in this season. I don't know, but it is something that's on my radar because I think for them to really sort of just dominate and take names offensively, they need him to be at that all-time goat, is this the greatest offensive player we've ever seen? And I feel like he's a little bit below that right now, but that doesn't matter in this series if they have bubble Jamal Murray. Oh, yeah. But, you know, just to give you some some numbers here before we talk about Murray a little bit, Jokic has played in 54 playoff games in his career right now. Two of his six least efficient two-point shooting games have hap- have been his last two games in the playoffs. So two of his least six two-point efficient games. And I think one of them, the one that that uh, typified it the most, right? And it was a play where he, like, got, like, a billion tips and missed them all, and it ended up catching it under the basket, and he tried this little reverse flick, and he missed it. And I'm like, this is so weird. Jokic's just touches a lot better than this. So I just I just want to put that out there. Something just seems a little bit off about Jokic. Nothing seems off about Murray. And something I really enjoyed about watching Murray is some of those movement shots that he hit. Uh, I can't describe the play off the top of my head right now, but there was some kind of action where he he goes and sets a screen for his teammate down near the paint, and then he just flares out, just screams out to the three-point line. I think it's Jokic hits him with a pass, he gets it and just buries it. So his shot is absolutely on. He took it to the streets, Ben, with the the transition transition play, right? It's the playground. Dribbles in between his legs, reverse between two, two defenders. Kevin Durant's there to swat it away. No, he finishes this incredible circus shot. 
That's Jamal Murray. Shades of the 360 layup back from the bubble. Man, if they have bubble Murray, this team is scary. This team is scary, and we definitely saw shades of it, Ben. Cody, that play, I'm going to blow your mind. Uh, he did not go behind his back or through his legs. He That pass actually, st- that dribble you're talking about in transition, stayed on the same side of his body. He did like a yo-yo move with his hand. You have to oh, see wow. it from the other angle. That's how That's how quick Jamal Murray was on that play. Um, this is really a thing. This is really a thing because when he plays like this, all of the Disney jokes aside, uh, that was just madness, some of the games he had in the bubble. But when he plays even in this in this space where he's confident and he's flowing around the court, like you said, uh, he just took over that game and had a few beautiful passes as well. First, the thing we need to talk about going forward for game two, seriously, is how the Suns are going to attempt to defend the two-man game between these two guys. Because when he plays like this, regardless of where you actually ultimately think of him as a player, he's easily an all-star offensive guard and maybe better. Maybe you're talking about like, how many players in the world would I take over him offensively being a short list? And once you do that and you pair that with Jokic, it's just like, um, I don't know how you stop this offense. Let, let me throw some numbers back at you. He he ended up with, quote unquote, only 34 points in this game. That That's his third game over 34 points in the last five games. Because he had 35 to close out Minnesota, and he had 40 in game two of that series, if you remember. So Jamal Murray's last three home games, he's gone for 40, 35, and 34. Um, I'll let you react to that, and I'm going to give you some offensive rating numbers because that, to me, was the key in game one. There's a lot of other things going on in game one that we talked about previewing this series with depth and the role players and how the Nuggets defense, you know, um, is kind of naturally tuned maybe to allow the Suns to get into their mid range. And the Suns didn't take shots at the basket and they didn't take three pointers and they shot 70% from two and they got blown out of the gym. So there's a ton of stuff to talk about, but oh, Cody, those two guys playing like this, what do you do? And the thing that they just have mastered that we saw over and over with the Warriors, with the Kings, is like, if the pick and roll doesn't work, that's not it, Ben. Jamal Murray pitches it back to Jokic, and then we're right back to it. He's going to run by. Maybe there's a fake. Maybe someone else runs by. Jamal Murray gets another screen. He comes running this way. It just doesn't end, right? So you have to play the entire shot clock. And, you know, we saw some of the passing. I think right when Jamal Murray was at his at his apex, just firing, not missing anything, he hits Jokic with that beautiful bullet pass. I think he's going up for a shot and just throws it through the defense. Uh, really, really incredible stuff. And I, I even thought the Nuggets shined on defense. Shown on defense? She, I'm the English teacher. I shined? Sh- he, he, they shamed on defense. They had quite the shame out there. Uh, but I don't know if you have more offensive stuff to talk about, but I want to I want to fawn over their defense a little bit too here. No, I just all I wanted to point out is that we are uh, into the second round of the Western Conference playoffs, and the Denver Nuggets offensive rating with Jokic on the court is 123. Um, I mean, I just don't think even, even Phoenix, with all its firepower, I, yes, technically you could win a series, you could win the close games, but it's just really hard to beat this team if you can't slow down the... I mean, we're talking about slowing down an offense, Cody, keeping them under 120. 
Let's just keep that into perspective. 120, uh, which, of course, the, the Kings essentially hit in the regular season this year, the highest raw offensive total ever. We're, we're looking at these numbers and we're like, get them into the 116, 118. That's how you can beat Denver. And um, as well as Minnesota played, one game one, 129 offensive rating for Denver against Phoenix. So th- that's the immediate thing heading into game two. We can talk about adjustments. We can talk about whatever whatever else we want. But that two-man game just destroyed them all night, the entire evening. It broke them down. Absolutely. And then on the d- defensive end, something we kept talking about it. How are they going to be able to protect Jokic on defense? What are they going to be able to do? They threw a lot of coverages out there, Ben. We saw, we saw your shift that you made an entire video on. They had their shift out there. Jokic was hedging and recovering. We saw Jokic drop. He dropped against Chris Paul a couple of times, which I think is a really interesting gambit to maybe try and bait Chris Paul into taking more shots and not let Devin Booker and Kevin Durant do that. But I'm going to keep an eye on that one. Aaron Gordon, but beyond his just like starting off on fire shooting defensively, I thought he did a wonderful job of gapping, digging in, playing at the nail. There were a couple times like Devin Booker drives in. Aaron Gordon helps off Kevin Durant. Devin Booker doesn't even look at Durant because he's like, I know that Aaron Gordon's going to get there by the time my pass gets there. That's incredible versatility. KCP. Contavious Caldwell Pope, he's out there just like, oh, DeAndre Ayton's wide open in the paint? No, he's not. I'm just going to teleport over there and steal it. Now, there's a couple of times that Ayton actually gets the ball in the paint. Nothing KCP can do about that. But their ability to be like, oh, Jokic isn't in the paint? We have to make sure Ayton does not catch it down there. And I was really impressed with everyone's ability to just fly around, play on a string. So I just, you know, maybe we can say some nice things about the Phoenix Suns too, but I thought this was just a awesome all-around game from every one of the Nuggets. You know, I actually wonder if the play, or there actually happened a couple times where maybe it was Booker who had Durant on the wing. Is that what you said? Yep, Is that the yep. setup? You know, I wonder how much of that is I'm nervous about that defender versus Booker's weaknesses as a playmaker. Both, mm. both Booker and Durant, and this is the really interesting thing about the Suns to me, they're both pretty good passers. They're both pretty good playmakers. They're both capable of taking pretty heavy loads and primacy with the ball in offenses, but they're not in that elite upper crust. They they have some weaknesses. Durant can kind of be a little uh, shaky under pressure, not only pushed off his spots, but passing into length or double teams or some of these actions you're talking about. And that so-called shift where... The Nuggets trap and then peel off and rotate and recover. That led to like two or three first half turnovers because of this, because you're throwing a different look. We saw it with Embiid against the Nets. It was the same thing. If you're not buttoned up with your reads and your passing, you can be exposed a little in that coverage. And with Booker last year, we saw it against the Mavs where they hedged or put two on the ball, gave him a lot of pressure, and it's difficult sometimes for him to make great reads or passes out of that coverage. Um, Goes back to Steph Curry a little bit, Cody, where when Steph Curry was younger, you could pressure him like that. And what we've seen in the last two playoffs and what we certainly saw on display in game seven is you give him these different coverages, you give him a hard hedge, two on the ball, trap, blitz. He is in control. He's patient. He's not, he's small. He's smaller than Durant and Booker, but what he's been able to do with his body and with his ball handling is carve out the possession the way he wants, 
hit the short roll, hit the outlet valve, and then the Warriors start pinging the ball around and they do their thing. I, You know, I don't know if the Suns can make a couple basic tweets. Uh, tweets. Now you've got me back on tweets. <laughs> tweaks. If the Suns can make a couple basic tweaks and change the angle on some of these plays and really make it easy and punish what Denver's doing. But I do know they didn't really do a great job of that in game one. And so you ended up with that theoretical kind of shot distribution that we talked about in the last episode where they take they make seven three-pointers. They take 23 three-pointers in the game, 61 twos, a ton of them from the mid-range. And you look at the stats, Booker and Durant, as they have uh, throughout the playoffs, they, they put up good numbers. They played well. Durant had three weak side blocks coming over, his defensive strengths that we talked about. Um, but it just it just wasn't enough. And the other thing, after we, after we take care of these things we talk about, the next thing to address for me for the Suns going forward, especially game two on the road, to see if anything can budge, is like, man, those role players felt invisible out there. Like, like Biombo played like six minutes and he got torched. And then it was like, oh, Jock Londale is in the game. This is this is what's happening. Oh, Landry Shamit's out there. He ended up taking one shot. Josh Kogi took one three-pointer. Outside of those Suns big four who played heavy minutes, those guys were invisible. So the depth again was a thing. I, I'm looking forward to game two of this series to see if Phoenix has anything that can throw off any of those big three points that we just talked about. I don't know if you'll agree with me on this, but after one game, look, I, I definitely... I feel a little bit better about the Nuggets in the series, but if you told me that this series ended up with any combination of one of the teams winning and losing, you tell me that the Suns win the next four games, I probably wouldn't believe that too much. Maybe if the Suns win four of the next five games, right? If you told me that happened, if you told me the Nuggets swept them, if you told me it went to seven games... I would honestly believe any of it because I do think like Aaron Gordon had a good shooting night. Jamal Murray, like you said, he's ramped up. Maybe this is just who he is in the playoffs, but that was a really good scoring game. If there's actually something wrong with Jokic's wrist, maybe the offense isn't quite there the rest of the series. Maybe Kevin Durant, did he have seven turnovers? Maybe they adjust in a way that Kevin Durant feels a lot more comfortable and doesn't have this many turnovers. I think there's a long way to go in this series. I'm, I'm not comfortable going either direction right now. Oh yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, this is... A, just the raw offensive talent that Phoenix has. And B, to your point, uh, take everything you just said and think about the single game variance in basketball. How easy it would be for Murray not to play like that and Aaron Gordon not to make like eight shots in a row to start the game. He ended up three of four from downtown with Murray cooking. Uh, Denver was 16 of 37 from three-point range, 43%. So you scale some of those things back, and all of a sudden Phoenix can steal game two, maybe playing a similar style. It's just, for me, it's less about focusing on, well, this one team lost, so they're clearly in the hole, and more about all the things we talked about heading into game one and the matchups and the way this series was going to work. And then independent of the score, just at the end of the first quarter being like, whoa, Denver can kind of get whatever they want with Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic in the middle of the floor. And these other question marks seem to be going in Denver's favor. And then you land on that math problem. You land on that mid-range theory of like, 
can Phoenix win four times against an offensive juggernaut? I know they can beat lesser offenses this way, making these tough shots in the mid-range, but can they win four times playing exactly like this, taking 50 or 55 shots from the mid-range? So I'm, I'm with you. I think the series is... Um, far from over as most series are after game one. And I wouldn't even be surprised if they come back tonight and win game two without too much changing. But for my eye, that shot quality, like who creates an advantage? What are the big pressure points of the series? I'm really tuning in tonight to see if Phoenix changes anything up a little bit. If they, if they tweet it up, as I said earlier. I'm confused. You, you tell me that the Nuggets can't sustain 43% from three. Don't don't most teams shoot like 45% from three over a series? Isn't that just a thing that, that teams do, Ben? This is the ben? therapeutic part of the episode. <laughs> Cody, do you have anything else that you would... I'm, gonna t- I'm, t- I'm telling you to prepare yourself. Miami will miss threes in this series. I know. I know yeah. they will, Ben. Um, just so it's on the record and out there, if Embiid was healthy, I would still pick the Celtics in like five or six. I think the Celtics are just like really built to take out the Sixers. But if Bede's not going to be healthy, this might be a sweep, Ben. Wow. Wow. An S word in this environment. Well, well, here's the thing. Okay. So looking back at that net series, right? Like that wasn't necessarily like a nice looking offensive series. And they kind of had the, the build to defend James Harden. Like that was a great group of guys that was like, you know, if we could have like one or two guys that could create to some degree, maybe you would have a chance in the series, but they just didn't have the offense. The Celtics kind of have the same thing where they just have like wing defenders everywhere. Like all like I'm talking like Mufasa looking out like wing defenders as far as the eye can see sort of thing. Right. Just like throw them all at James Harden. James Harden doesn't look as quick as he did when we were talking about how sad it was that he didn't uh, make the all-star team. I, I think he's going to struggle mightily without Embiid in there. And then Embiid knowing, I mean, based off the way that Embiid presents himself, He's, I feel like he's going to come back sooner than he should, and it's it's just going to be tough when Al Horford is out there, Ben. I'm a little upset that you uh, brought this series up, honestly. I thought we could get out of here again without talking about the Celtics and just keep our, keep our streak alive. We're short on time. We have to end the episode, and um, I do agree with you, especially with Embiid missing time. It, it looks more like an uphill battle for Philadelphia, but I think if you're going to miss time, I've said this many years in a row, when you have an injury at the beginning of the series like this, being on the road can strategically mitigate the damage of that missed time because you don't lose serve yet. So if Embiid, if Embiid does miss two games in Boston and then is able to come back in game three and you win game three and you're down 2-1, yes, you would love those opportunities to be healthy and, and steal one on the road already to start the series. But if you're at home and you don't have Embiid, and you go 1-1 or 0-2 at home, then you have a bunch of road games coming up. So at least that mitigates it a little bit from Philadelphia's perspective if he can come back and play. Um, let's, let's, let's watch that series and then talk about it next time. Let's do that. Let's, yeah. just, save, let's just save the Celtics be, until they're in the finals. That, that's when we can actually start talking about the Celtics. <laughs> so every series the Celtics are in, we'll just continue to wait to see if they make it back to the finals. And then we can uh, just pump out one hour worth of scouting report. Yeah, that's exactly it. Because then all of our content for the finals can be nice and fresh. It's like, oh, the Celtics team, they're actually pretty good if you haven't been watching them. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good idea. 
I like that. Uh, if you want to support this show, check out patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Someone asked recently, we will have our live stats leaderboard that we use all the time and reference on this show. We'll have that up for the playoffs in the next few days. We're just finalizing uh, any glitches and bugs to make sure it is, it is working properly tuned up for the playoffs. If you're wondering in the first round, our, our box model that we use, uh, Devin Booker, Cody had the best box plus minus in the first round of mm-hmm. any player. And Jimmy Butler is currently second. Those, mm-hmm. those two guys were, were great in the first round of the playoffs. So you can check that out. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Otherwise, uh, thanks for listening all the way through on this one. And of course, I hope you are having a great day.